Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. What will it take to put Canada on the path to greater prosperity in a post-COVID world? The economy is forecast to climb as much as 5% in 2021, after a more than 5% decline this year. But it's still a case of one step forward after two steps back. For insight into why we can't just tax our way out of our coronavirus debt, I turn to Goldie Hyder, the CEO of the Business Council of Canada. His economist and policy expert Robert Aslan joined him, as did Deloitte's chief economist Craig Alexander. I began by pointing out that this is a financial crisis fueled by a health crisis, and asked Craig, does the news of a vaccine change things? Well, it, it does create a light at the, tu- at the end of the tunnel. We know that uh, globally there is enormous efforts underway to find a, a vaccine. And a vaccine that was close to 100% effective would obviously end the pandemic. There is a, a, f- a few considerations, though. Uh, number one is you know, whether, whether we will see vaccines that act like a full vaccine or whether we have vaccines that improve or reduce the, the, um, the impact of, of being sick with COVID-19. The other dimension is even when we find a vaccine, if you think about the logistics of rolling that out to the, the global economy, uh, it is going to take an extended period of time. And while governments will make it a top priority once we actually have uh, the vaccine in hand, uh, it is going to still take us a long time. So, you know, ultimately, we, we know that this is a, a pandemic. The solution is a vaccine. We have to live with it until we have a vaccine. Uh, we're making progress, and that's great news. But it's still going to be some time before we, we, we see a, a vaccination take place. Yeah, I think the, uh, the big question here is the interim period, uh, the bridge to when we'll get more certainty on vaccine distribution. As we're seeing in the, in the country, cases are going up everywhere. I think we're still not doing enough uh, good on testing, tracing. Uh, results are still slow to come in. And so um, as a result, I think, you know, the... Uh, the outcomes on the outside won't be good, and the, on the economic front, all the progress we've made in the last few months uh, could be in jeopardy. So I, I'm worried about the next few months. I think we need to keep our eyes on the ball and making sure that the health response remains our most uh, important priority. Goldie, when we look ahead to putting us back on the path to greater prosperity, Canada's economy had growth troubles before COVID-19 hit. There's no question uh, about that, Michael, and I think that in, in many ways, this is a seminal moment in the life of our country. We need to recognize that sort of what got us here, which is really relying on the United States to, in many ways, is probably not going to get us to where we need to go. And so we've got to shake the shackles of comfort and complacency and somewhat you know, uh, overconfidence that as America rises, so do we. We don't know when that's going to happen again, and it's going to take a long time for, for North America. You know, I was looking at a global map today about the level of indebtedness and it's primarily, if not almost exclusively, in the West. There is no Western country scheduled for GDP, GDP growth in 20, 2020, but there is at least one, if not others, who are dancing with positive GDP growth in, in the Eastern um, Hemisphere. And they include not just uh, you know communist countries or, or others, but it's, it's democracies as well. So it's not about what kind of government you have, it's about what kind of policies that you have and what kind of actions, deliberate actions, intentional actions that you take 
to come out of this uh, situation stronger than than you went into it. And I think that we've got to reflect very hard on the last uh, eight months or so to say, what have we learned? You know, what are we trying to do here? What's our objective? And I think in many ways, that's one of the challenges that we face is uh, six, uh, six or eight months ago when we did the lockdown, we knew what we were doing. We were saving our hospital system. We wanted to preserve the ICU wards and the emergency wards. We had time to build our response to PPE shortages. There was a sort of a wartime response from business and government, and it worked. But since then, we seem to have kind of lost our way. We're not sure what we're trying to do. And we're playing whack-a-mole with this virus. And so I'm looking at this from the perspective of how are Canadians feeling about the health response so that they can feel confidence about the economic response. And there, I think there's much much more work to do on both of those fronts, as Craig and uh, and Robert have suggested. If we need a strong pro-growth agenda, how do we balance the need with the need to address the climbing debt tied to fighting COVID? It feels like a two-part question. So, Craig, maybe give us a sense as to what strong pro-growth should look like. So one of the <clears throat> one of the greatest concerns is the amount of debt that governments are taking on. And probably the most common question I get from, from business leaders and from many Canadians is, how are we going to pay for this? Um, you know, are our taxes are taxes going to to skyrocket uh, down the road um, in response to the the, the de- deficits and debt that we're we're taking on? And the when we when we think about the the near term, obviously the government responses in terms of massive fiscal stimulus are the right ones. We you know in effect, if if governments had had shut down large parts of the economy, but hadn't provided income support to, to workers and businesses, we would, we would be currently in a depression. So we, we're avoiding the worst case scenario, uh, but we are still in the midst of the pandemic. And what that means is that the economy is going to continue to need government, government support. Um, you know, income support for unemployed workers is going to need to be maintained. You know, hard hit industries that are having the most difficult time recovering that were profitable pre-COVID are going to continue to need to need support. So in the near term, and, and, and as we have the second wave and the vaccine is not hasn't arrived immediately, you know, there, there are risks that we're going to have uh, further further restrictions put 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 on the economy. Um, up to this point, Canada, the U.S. are trying to be very surgical about their their approach in terms of not locking everything down. But one of the one of the things that we saw in Europe is the U.K. economy has gone back to shutting down all non-essential services to to address the the health risks. And one of my concerns is that at the end of the year, when we have the holidays, I think we definitely could see. Um, more social contact, and 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 we could see infection rates rise even further uh, post December holidays. So you know, in the near term, governments are going to to need to keep the fiscal taps open. But then the question becomes, you know, post pandemic, how are we going to pay for this? And the reality is that the most effective way to address the the the, the large debt is going to be growing our way out of it. Uh, it, given the magnitude of the deficits and the amount of debt that's being taken on, tax hikes uh, would only make a small dent in in rebalancing fiscal policy. Uh, what what we actually need to do is accelerate the pace of growth. And and to your point earlier, you know, if we think about pre-COVID, Canada wasn't on the path of prosperity because of an aging population, because of weak business investment, uh, which was leading to very very limited increases in the capital stock of the country. And, and weak productivity and innovation, 
you know, the combination of these factors meant that from, from the 1990s, when we used to grow at a trend rate around 3%, the best that Canada could do pre-COVID over the next 10 years was probably growth of around one7 That is not going to be adequate to drive, you know, significant gains in living standards. Moreover, the tax revenues from that modest growth is going to make it really hard for governments to rebalance their finances. So, so as, as I already mentioned, now, now is the time for change. There is a silver lining here. We can fundamentally change business models and fiscal policy in a way that could actually promote much stronger growth that would generate more tax revenues that would allow the economy to or allow fiscal policy to be rebalanced in a more in in the mo- the more constructive approach. Craig said all the right things, right? It's about ultimately the choices that we make uh, as we go forward. Our message to the government has been one of. Um, we applaud and acknowledge the importance of having put a floor on the collapse of the life of the individual so we didn't have civil strife and suffering uh, occur in Canada, the level that it did in other countries. So no question, you know, full marks for governments moving quickly. I wish they moved that quickly on a variety of other issues we normally talk to them about, but they did move quickly to put that in place. We do now, though, have to take stock of the distressed sectors that are uh, in peril to such an extent that if we don't help them in some way, and it's not always about money, it's about a variety of other things as well. If we don't help them, the jobs that they have are going to disappear. Therefore, you're back to looking to government to take care of even more Canadians, because unfortunately, I would say that once these supports eventually lift, you're going to see perhaps an increase in unemployment for a short period of time. So the choices that governments make to ensure that Canada remains attractive to capital is is extremely important. And that means predictability, regulatory stability. You know, um, this is a time for extreme competitiveness around the world. We should not rest on our laurels that we're Canada, you know, everybody wants to be here. There's a lot of choices out there for capital and frankly for human capital as well. I've always said Canada's three pillars for economic prosperity are in no particular order, but trade, immigration, and investment. If you take any of those away, or if you lose support for any of those, uh, which I think is equally important for governments and businesses to remind Canadians, you know, don't go native on us here. That this, These are critical pillars of growth for all the reasons that Craig identified in terms of our structural deficits that uh, that we face here. And David Dodge and others have written about it quite extensively. So if you're going to spend, spend with purpose. Spend so it's accretive that it addresses our productivity lag and it helps us position ourselves and pivot to growth because as Craig rightly says, growth is the best response. Growth is what's going to address a lot of the economic challenges, but frankly also a lot of the social challenges that businesses and society is facing from, you know, inclusivity, diversity, the indigenous agenda, Black Lives Matter, gender equality, you know, childcare comes to mind. You know, Sheryl Sandberg has written about how much this uh, this virus has created burnout for women in particular, and and how you know we as businesses have been supporting childcare as a response to help women and men who find that as an essential service to be able to reengage uh, in the economy. So, uh, you know, this is a very different crisis than two thousand and eight. We have to look at it differently. This is not about short term stimulus and you know hard hat jobs for a year or two. Those industries are not the ones that are struggling. We need to make sure that we have a longer term plan and a long longer term view. And, uh, and I'll pass it to my colleague Robert here, who's the author of a policy paper on how do we power our economy and growth? Uh, and then how do we how do we do that working in collaboration and partnership with uh, business and government to do so? 
Well, Robert, let's expand on that. Fighting COVID has been compared to the efforts undertaken during the Second World War. Can Canada grow its way out of its debt burden? Where are the weak spots in the economy? You know, Goldie suggests a rising tide will not lift all boats. Yeah, what I think got us into uh, trouble before COVID, and it's the same danger we face now, is short-term thinking, as Goldie just mentioned. Um, you know, this short-term view that things will be okay, natural resources will get us out of trouble, our, our trade with the U.S. will carry the day, and that at the end of the day, Canada will be fine. I, I think these key anchors that we used to take for granted are gone now. We live in a world that is more challenged on the geopolitical side, on the trade side. Countries are looking more inward looking. So those are structural challenges for Canada that is obviously a trading nation. We have to export more than we consume. That's how our economy can grow. So I I guess going back to fixing the fundamentals, we have to have a long-term strategy that addresses the key part of what a growth, uh, you know, successful country is, which is, I think the priority going forward and the kind of economy we're living in is really people. Uh, we have to invest in our human capital. We have to have a skilled labor force, an agile labor force. We have to have uh, to make sure that all groups in society participate in the labor force. That includes obviously women, indigenous uh, people, and and. Um, we have to be much better on the ideas front, on the innovation side, because that's how you raise productivity. You look at the story of the United States after Second World War, what got them so successful is mainly because they became a very innovative country. And that was built with a very, very powerful uh, kind of bridge between the public and the private sector. You look at institutions such as DARPA in the United States, NASA, kind of uh, big challenge, mission-driven policy. Uh, so I, I think these are the key blocks uh, going forward. On the capital side, we know what they are, the issues. We've been talking about them for a long time. Interprovincial trade, infrastructure, the regulatory uh, problems we have in Canada. Those are should be easy fixes. But I think what requires a lot of work is our innovation agenda in a people-centric agenda going forward. Well, Craig, you and I have talked extensively about this. One of the keys to growth is immigration, and Canada has opened its doors to increased immigration. Is this how we return to growth? Immigration is 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 useful, but it's it's not a silver bullet that that solves the demographic issues. So. You know, I'm I'm strongly supportive of 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 the government of Canada's decision to up the immigration target numbers over the next several years, uh, because we do have an aging population, and that is going to lead to uh, skills shortages. Even even through the pandemic, uh, I've had clients that have complained about about still having shortages of particularly skilled workers in in certain categories. And so as, as a consequence, you know, as the population ages, labor force growth is going to slow and we can bring in more newcomers uh, to soften the blow. But understand that the, the baby boomer cohort is such a large demographic that no realistic amount of immigration is going to fully offset the impact of their of their exit from the, the baby boomer exit from the labor force. So it can temper the blow, but it, it, it can't reverse it. 
Uh, but what we have is a situation where we have very large segments of the Canadian population that are underutilized. So a good example of this is if you if you put in place a effective, high quality, accessible, affordable childcare program, you could bring you could lift labor participation amongst women by roughly ninety thousand positions, um, you know, from pre-COVID levels. Um, one of the things that the current the current pandemic has shown is the criticality of childcare in terms of of labor participation for for parents, and so uh, this is an area that Canada has historically underinvested, and and the economic case has been come has become so so clear. Moreover, you can then you know you can provide that childcare with 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 a good early learning program so that you build more resilient kids upskill our children so that so that they are more they're the more resilient workers of the future another example is there's a large pool of disabled uh, Canadians who report to statscan there's 644,000 disabled Canadians that say they would work if 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 there was a job for them to, to work at that that had the you know the right accessibility well with the shift to remote work and di more digital work you know I think we could bring many disabled Canadians into the labor market so there's big pools of underused utilized labor if we think about who's been really hard hit by this recession youth so are always more affected and we need to support their outcomes indigenous people have the highest have the highest birth rate and they're the fastest growing population in Canada and yet they they have unacceptable labor market outcomes. So one of the things we need to do is remove the barriers to success that would that would unlock the you know increase the productivity of many of our workers that are whose whose skills and potential are not being adequately tapped. But then beyond that, you know, it isn't just about about the labor market outcomes, it's also about creating an environment for the private sector to flourish. And you know, as I already mentioned, there's, 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 there, there. You know, Canada is a great place to open a business. It, it's one of the easiest places to open a business, but it turns out it's one of the most difficult places to scale a business. And in my mind, we are going to lose a lot of businesses during during this recession. And I think the wage subsidy and and other government programs have, in a sense, insulated the economy from from some of the the impact. But when I think I think in fact we have zombie companies out there that are only being kept alive on those government support programs and when the wage subsidy ends and other and other programs end I think we're going to see higher insolvency and bankruptcy rates. I wouldn't be surprised if we lose like 1 in 10 small businesses in Canada. So, you know, if we want stronger economic growth, we really need to have an agenda that 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 promotes uh business startups to replace the businesses that were lost and also to, to, to help those businesses to scale. And, and, and I also think that's, that's part of the story around how we get more investment, right? If we, if we help businesses to scale, we will, we will get businesses to in, invest more. And one of the big changes we're seeing right now is capital spending has fallen dramatically, but spending investment on digital has increased. And this, this is, this is a, you know, this is a trend that was taking place pre-COVID, a move towards more digital. Uh, but it was really hard, actually, to get a lot of companies to fully embrace digital. Well, now businesses understand that they need to go digital for growth. So now we need to remove the barriers that are in place 
that 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 slow businesses down in terms of their their digital their digital adoption and and some of, some of this has to do with like that it won't cost the government anything because a lot of the barriers to scaling and growth is on the regulatory front well, Goldie, let's take a focused look at that specifically. Craig points out that it starts with people with disabilities being told they couldn't work from home because it wasn't possible. We now know that's not the case. Does the acceleration of digitalization of business give flagging productivity a shot in the arm? We've seen companies achieve five-year digitalization plans in five months. Yeah, there's uh, no question that uh, the primary impact I hear on businesses from our CEOs is acceleration. That what was in the in the offing for the next three, four, five years has happened in three, four, five months, as you note. And so that's a good thing because it allows us to to compete, right? And that's what this is all about: is we're we're, we're positioning ourselves to compete. You know, I, I think the stuff that Craig said on 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 workforce utilization is is really essential here. It's not either or. Like uh, I, I agree that immigration is not a silver bullet, but maintaining support for it is very important. And I think from our business perspective, it's an issue I hear when I ask CEOs what's keeping you up at night. And certainly, talent is a high on their list, uh, not only uh, now, but even before the virus, and I expect it will be after. So immigration leads to population growth. Population growth, of course, leads to economic growth, and that's the cycle that we've been on. But I I do think that the ability to maintain support for uh, social policies and economic policies that have some somewhat of an emotional tinge to them that immigration does, it is important to do, as Craig said, and that is fully utilize the availability of your existing workforce. He mentioned, you know, people with disabilities and women and others, I would add to it, foreign skills, accreditation issue, longstanding issue that we still continue to struggle with. Uh, and then the other thing that uh, that Craig touched on, which I think is also key and is very much a big part of our paper that, uh, that Robert has spoken about, is is the is the attitudinal stuff we've got to aspire to be more than average we've got to aspire to be more than settling for you know this is the best that we can do we can't afford to lose um, companies that could be you know global leaders because we we settle for you know uh, uh, you know I've, I've you know I built a company to 10 million time to sell and buy a cottage in Muskoka we need to be more ambitious more deliberate more determined to build companies of size and scale here. And you know, Craig points to this, but Michael, uh, Canada has a great story to tell in, in so many ways. You know, we're, we have a history of, of attracting capital and attracting talent and the diversity of that talent. We have solid education systems. We have businesses that want to, you know, to, to grow. We need to work better in partnership with our governments to sort of figure out what do we want to be when we grow up. And, and this is a moment, as I've said, about choices. It's not saying out with the old, we're no longer a natural resource economy and in with the new and we're just going to do all that cool, sexy stuff with the intangibles. It's a combination. It's and. It's how do we we leverage fully the capabilities and the capacities of our of our traditional resources, our natural resources and so forth, while ensuring we're pivoting and growing to where the puck is going, as, as Gretzky is, is famous for saying. We can do both. These are not necessarily mutually exclusive choices. And so we, we encourage a partnership. Countries that are working well and growing well have a strong, robust relationship of business and government uh, to figure out a roadmap for prosperity and growth, which frankly, our, our citizens are counting on us to do that for them. So then, Robert, how do we harness digital enough to not only compete on the world stage, but excel on the world stage? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I'm of the view that intellectual capital will be a big creator 
of economic wealth uh, going forward. The issue for a country like Canada is that we have to be much more intentional and focused on creating, leveraging, and um, retaining our ideas, our patents in Canada. Intellectual property is much more important than it was before because of the importance of intellectual capital in the economy. If you look at all the big dominant tech firms, most of it, the value of these firms are uh, in intangibles, you know, data, software, uh, their ability to uh, use analytics to uh, build their business, all that stuff. You look at a sector like an AI in Canada, artificial intelligence, we've been quite good at doing the research part of it. And we have researchers that are known in the world for the quality of research they do on AI. But when you look at the number of patents that come out of Canada on AI, we're very weak. That's the kind of thing we have to turn around. We have to become much more focused on that creation of, of wealth going forward. And I think government have a, have a big role to incentivize this. Having said that though, Silicon Valley has this great phrase, move fast and break things. Very antithetical to government. Not very keen on moving fast because they don't want to break things, but we have been moving fast on the digitalization of both our businesses and our mindsets. What are we breaking in the process though? Have we put enough emphasis on things like privacy and digital rights? And is there a role for government to play in all this beyond what they already have? Well, I, I think actually it isn't, it isn't about, you know, it isn't so much about breaking things, but like I think a necessary condition to fully unlock the potential of digital is, is, is around, around uh, regulation and, and on the, the subject of data privacy. You know, like, it, like again, this is, you know, during this crisis, it, it's created, you know, an opportunity for change. And one of my one of my hopes was that as as we did more uh, like contact contact tracing, you know, you might actually get to a, a world where Canadians are a little more comfortable with uh, you know how how data how how data is handled and, and used. And I think that like different countries are are at different positions along the spectrum around being highly restrictive on 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 data privacy. And, and others being, you know, much more flexible. And you have to find, you know, the purpose of regulation is to defend the public interest. And, you know, I'm certainly not calling for deregulation. You know, I saw what deregulation did to financial services in terms of creating the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So I'm not, I'm not a, you know, an ardent deregulator. What we actually need is smart regulation. And we need to, you know, and... And putting off making decisions around things like data privacy, you know, is coming with an economic cost, right? So we, we, we you know, if we want to unlock the full potential, we need to be able to, to, share, to share data. I, I did a workshop with one, one provincial government that had all of the different um, departments or ministries of that, of that government and you know we talked about how digital could transform the way government operates and delivers its services and how much productivity could be created and 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 how we could um increase create economic efficiencies and then we got to the end of the session and they said yeah that's great but we actually can't do any of that because we can't share data between ministries 
Welcome to Canada, right, Craig? I mean, how many issues do we know that that's the case, starting with interprovincial trade barriers? <laughs> right. And, and, and so you can see the lost economic opportunity there. Right. And and so that's that's the sort of challenge. That's the sort of challenge we're dealing with. But the good news is that, you know, businesses have been pushed outside their comfort zone and they're now making investments that they 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 weren't planning on making. Right. I I dealt with a major grocery chain that had a five year plan where they wanted to go in terms of of digital uh, like e-commerce and they accomplished their five year plan in two weeks. Right? And that also made them think about other other opportunities to change and, and, and shake up their business model. Well, similarly, governments, governments, you can now have a very constructive conversation with governments around, around policies for change, right? To accelerate growth, to increase productivity, because they they now understand, they, they now understand better the urgency. Pre-COVID, it didn't resonate as well because it sort of felt like times were okay and unemployment was low. So, you know, talking about the, the fact we needed to change the path Canada is on didn't resonate, but now it does, right? And so now we can talk about like the digitalization of government and, but, but there, 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 there are, you know, there are obstacles. The one thing I, I hope we do is we, ma- we maintain that, that sense of urgency. That's a great point, Craig. I think the urgency piece is critical, right? Because so much of what you've said and what we've all talked about is, uh, really attitudinal. I said it off the top, right? This is about choices. This is about us taking stock of, of sort of how we got here and is it good enough to get us to where we need to get to? And a lot of it is also about the relationship between our governments and our businesses, our relationship between our governments. As we've seen, we don't even have a national app to deal with a health crisis, right? I mean, we're begging people to download an app, which by the way, I encourage people to do. It works and it can make a big difference in the spread. Um, and, you know, we have made progress on the data charter and on privacy issues and stuff. And I think having what I described as adult conversations on these big issues requires us as a country to stop playing small ball and there's a role for the media and all of this as well the usual reporting about what happened today in question period or the gotcha stuff that's all fine i understand it's politics but we need to grow up as a country and have really mature conversations because we have an opportunity to control our own destiny or have it be controlled for us. How we come out of this crisis is going to be very critical to our ability to continue to be an important, relevant player in the world or to slip back because others are making decisions, you know, uh, that are accelerating their growth and are accelerating their economic prosperity. So we have chances, opportunities to, to contribute tremendously on climate change, for example. We have very innovative businesses. So we can't beat them up in Canada. We need to to celebrate them and we need to show them that look through fiscal investment, through innovation, we're going to be able to solve not just Canadian problems, but global problems. And so I encourage our political uh, leaders in particular and the media for that matter to knock off the small ball. Right. Like, let's get serious about what we are as a nation and where we want to go. What is the strategy that's going to take us there? What is the plan? And as, as Robert likes to use the phrase, let's be deliberate. Let's be deliberate about the choices. You know, my my dad likes to say that, you know, 
Canada is arguably one of the greatest countries in the world, but it's also been spoilt in many ways that we have so few problems that we're busy making them all up. So much of what we have spoken about are self-made problems, our regulatory regimes, our interprovincial trade barrier regimes, our inability to get productivity uh, up. These are not things that you can blame on globalization or the United States or others. It, these are choices that we make. So let's make the right choices uh, for our policies as we go forward. And it starts with making sure that we manage this health crisis effectively. Canadians, what I call severely normal people, are yearning for a national approach, nationally coordinated, uh, to build confidence so that they can see a path forward. Uh, and I think that there's still it's still not too late, that there's a moment here where our governments can, can really help chart a path forward. It's about leadership. We're doing our part. We want to be a partner. But I think, uh, you, you know, um, realizing the urgency of this moment can really be a chance for us to look back and say, here's where we set ourselves for path for prosperity and for growth. Uh, and that's when you can have a lot of the inclusivity agendas and, and the climate agendas and everything also have the support. Because if the economy fails, support for those policies also falls apart. And so it's a mutual interest to make sure that we get the economy right. And your conversation today takes a big step in that direction, I think. There is talk of a 5% growth rate for Canada in 2021. Is that reasonable in light of the vaccine announcement, for example? The simple answer is yes, uh, but it has to do with how far the, the economy fell in, in 2020. Um, and, you know, you, you need to be mindful of the, uh, of the math here. Um, so, you know, the Canadian economy is going to contract by about 5.5% this year. You know, it sounds like if you grow by, say, 5% next year, you know, you're going to make up the, the, the ground you lost. Well, that's not quite how math works, right? Because if you have an investment worth $100 and it drops in value by 50%, to get back to $100, you need an increase of 100%. And so, so, you know, assuming that the second wave of infection does not lead to broad-based uh, renewed, um, renewed uh, restrictions, uh, the very strong growth in the third quarter of this year and, and, and some solid gains in the fourth quarter of this year create a very good handoff to, to, to the average rate of growth next year. And so as a consequence, yes, mathematically, we're, we're going to get a strong, you know, we should see a strong 2021. But if you looked at the quarterly profile, what you would see is that the pace of growth is going to slow very precipitously. So, you know, it looks to us like, you know, growth in the third quarter was probably around 42% annualized. And then in the fourth quarter, that pace of growth is going to drop to something like like 5%, 6%. But then as you go into next year, you're going to start to see the growth rates dropping down to very low single digits. And and so the average might work out as 5%, but understand that this, you know, it's still going to be a long slog here. The vaccine does not change that. It's still going to take, like, I'll go back to where I started. The logistics of rolling out a vaccine across the entire Canadian population is going to be very difficult. Just try getting a flu shot right now. So now imagine trying to do the vaccine. And so, you know, I think that we're still looking at a, a protracted economic recovery where the economy doesn't get back to pre-COVID levels until 2022. And I don't think the labor market will get back to pre-COVID levels until 2023. So it is still going to be a long slog here. Yeah, so I agree with Greg on the, the baseline, given where we are, next year doesn't uh, it's not the, the right place to look. 
what, what you need to look at, I think, is 2022, 2023, 2024. And this is how we need to raise our game, essentially. If you look at uh, the past decade, it's been, it's been hard. Anytime you, does, you don't grow you know, above 2%, I think it's not good news. You're not improving your living standards. You're not creating uh, wide shared prosperity. You're not creating more money to redistribute to social programs. Uh, and inclusive, you know, results. And so you have to be much more ambitious. You, you have to look at three, four percent growth to make a real difference. And I think we're really far from there. As, as Greg mentioned many times, we're an aging society. Our productivity is low. So to, in order to get to over two percent on an ongoing basis, let's say after 2022, it will require a lot of hard work. It will require big structural uh, policy shifts, and I think we should not kid ourselves that just because the, the price of oil will go up, that we'll be fine again. You know, this is not how we should think about growth going forward. We should think about how uh, you know a, a medium nation, the size that we are, uh, should think about harness its full potential. And I, again, I'll, I'll close back on what I think is essential in our case. We will grow with our economy mostly with our human capital with what is in our brain. And once we understand that and we capitalize on that, I think we can be a very successful nation, which we are, but we can obviously uh, aspire to better days. At Deloitte, we've done modeling in terms of what would actually, what, what could we actually achieve if we remove the barriers facing um, the, the dis disadvantaged groups? Uh, who are not reaching their full potential in the labor market? And what would happen if we unlocked the potential of digital and increased investment and scaling? And we actually think you could lift the sustainable rate of growth in Canada from 1.7% up to as high as 2.7%. And that might not sound like much, but by 2030, it would generate uh, more than $350 billion of additional income in the Canadian economy. And doesn't, doesn't that number sound sort of familiar? It sounds a lot like what the federal government has paid so far to fight the war against COVID. So in point of fact, I think you can materially increase Canadian prosperity if we actually made progress in breaking down the barriers facing people, increased investment in digital, increased, um, increased productivity, and the capital stock of the nation. Well, I'll uh, not uh, question the wisdom of, of two smarter guys than I am on on, on being economists, but uh, so I'll, I'll grant them uh, what they've said. But what I will do is quote, you know, our governor of the Bank of Canada, who has said that there's going to be an uneven recovery. And I think that is true. I think there are some businesses whose best before date had already come. All that's happened is that the uh, the virus and the, the, the pandemic crisis that we're in has accelerated their, their demise. Um, you know, 95% of our economy is in fact functioning and functioning fairly well, as, uh, as, I, as, I, as I learned from my other conversation with our former Bank of Canada governor. But that 5% is still a big number. Uh, the, the, the number of unemployed, uh, as I said, and Craig suggested, could rise. We have to be prepared for that. Reskilling, something we've not mentioned, skills agenda, I think is going to be very critical to our economic, uh, economic growth here. 
um, we are coming off a low base. So, of course, we're going to enjoy uh, some growth, but we have to be much more ambitious than that, as I've said. And I think it's about choices, Michael. It's about the choices that we're going to make. I mean, just take the fact that the IMF has said, you know, our interprovincial trade barriers uh, have basically suffocated roughly 4% of GDP growth. We need to lift those darn things and we need to lift them now. I mean, it's absurd that political uh, will is lacking. Um, let's put the national interest ahead of some myopic interest of, 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 a, of a region or a province or some special interest group. Let's think about the best interests of Canada so we can grow back that economy. And as the old saying goes, a rising tide can lift um, can lift all boats. But to do so, and this has really been our call, is it requires a strategy. We're calling on the government to work collaboratively with businesses and others to actually figure out, as I said, what do we want to be when we grow up? What do we need to do to get there? Uh, and, and also to root that strategy in fiscal discipline and fiscal responsibility, because, you know, when it comes to investment markets and, and, and credit agencies and investors are rather agnostic, they're dispassionate about the emotion, they're really about math. And so they do want to see what are your fiscal anchors, what, what, what are you prepared to do? And as I've said, we're not opposed to spending. We think spending with purpose is the way to do it. But it starts with having a strategy and the leadership to get us there. So uh, I hope that those who are listening will continue to echo some of the things that Robert and, and, uh, and Craig and I have discussed today, because when it comes from regular folks, it goes a long way with our political leaders. And thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Craig Alexander is the Chief Economist and Executive Advisor at Deloitte Canada. Goldie Heider is the President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. And Robert Aslan is its Senior Vice President of Policy. Still to come from a socially distant C.D. Howe, November 19th, Innovative Policies for Life Science Innovation with Drs. Gerald Baptiste, Patricia Danzen and Pierre gurlier Foray. Later, graduating into a crisis, entering the workforce during the COVID recession with John Hepburn, the CEO and Scientific Director at MyTax, and Rachel Wernick, a Senior Assistant Deputy Minister at Employment and Social Development Canada. That's November 24th. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.